We live in an increasingly secular age. Many of us have been witnesses to the transformation of our own society, which was once, as many of you know, influenced heavily by Judeo-Christian values, but now is ever more influenced by a secular humanism. One of the dangers, though, of acknowledging our growing secular culture is to think that we are growing less and less religious. While we have grown more and more secular, we have also grown more and more religious. Now, what do I mean? Those who hold to this new secular worldview are just as religious as those who hold to historic Christian values. You see, you need to understand that God created us to be worship, worshipful beings. He created us to worship things, and particularly to worship Him. But when God isn't the object of our worship, we tend to worship other things. And therefore, we see in our own culture this worship of human virtue or human freedom. Something in this culture has taken the place of the worship of God. For the one who worship controls that which is worshipped. One of the things we need to understand is that our neighbors that do not know Christ are just as religious as we are. They just simply have another religion. They have another set of values which seems to control how they behave and what they give themselves to. And particularly here in this culture, it is the worship of self, self-identity, self-virtues, self. We do what we do in order to worship ourselves. Well, I say all of this to understand that these religious leaders that Jesus is confronting had their own religion, a religion created by self. This is the temptation that each of us face. Apart from Jesus, we worship something else. Now, before we begin, I want to just remind us of where we've come. Luke is again writing to his friend Theophilus. Theophilus was a Christian. And uh, Luke has picked up his pen in order to encourage his friend Theophilus and to strengthen his faith. That is that all that Theophilus has been taught in church is true and trustworthy. And Luke compiles eyewitness accounts in order to prove that Jesus is who he said he was. By understanding that this is the lens we ought to read and know and understand this letter, we can have a rich appreciation and our own strength can grow as we trust that Jesus is who he revealed himself to be. That Jesus is the long-awaited messianic king. He is the long-awaited Messiah who would fully and finally deliver God's people. That he's a king and he ushered in his kingdom. This new kingdom in which he rules and reigns over, while it has been inaugurated, we come to find out that it has not yet fully 
come. That kingdom that Jesus prayed would come here on earth as it was in heaven doesn't come until He returns. And so, you and I find ourselves in the already and not yet, the beginning of the end. Well, friend, with that in mind, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 5. And I'm going to begin, now we've been taking different uh, looks at this. Uh, Last week, we kind of uh, flew the plane a little closer to the ground and and got a a more up-close picture. This week, we've kind of taken the plane back up to cruising altitude, and we're going to consider five scenes in Jesus' ministry Each of them is marked by a growing hostility from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And so, while Jesus was experiencing popularity and His ministry growing and expanding, as it did, it was met with more and more opposition. And this opposition was from the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And what we come to find out is that their religion, their gospel could not save. And so rather than reading this in whole, I'm going to give you the point of the sermon and these passages, and then as we look at each scene, I'll seek to read and explain it. The main idea of verses 17 through chapter 6, verse 11, which is one unit in this book, each of which, as I said, marked by confrontation with religious leaders, has this main idea. Jesus reveals Himself as the Savior we all need. And that word need becomes very important because there are those in these stories that don't recognize their need for Jesus. In other words, to reject Jesus is to acknowledge that I don't need Jesus. And so the purpose of our time this morning is really for you and I to get a feeling sense of our need for Jesus. Like if we don't have Jesus, we have nothing. And so I have four main reasons why you and I don't need Jesus. I've kind of done this backwards, if you will, in order to prompt you to think. So you don't need Jesus if you're a good person. If, you, if you're a good person and, and you're, you're good, you don't need Jesus. You don't need Jesus if you have the right friends. If you hang around with the right people. The, the socially upright, the morally upright. If you have good friends, morally good friends, you don't, you don't need Jesus. You don't need Jesus. You don't need Jesus if you're religious. If you're religious. Now, you don't need Him. If, if you, you know, attend church and you read your Bible and you pray regularly, you don't need Jesus. You don't need him. And lastly, we'll see in chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, you don't need Jesus if you follow the rules. 
If you're a rule keeper and you follow all the rules and you've got a whole list of rules and you follow them, like you drive the speed limit, you don't need Jesus. You don't need him at all. And these are the four points I want us to consider this morning. First, you don't need Jesus if you're a good person. Look with me here at verse 17. On one of those days, somewhat of an anonymous uh, beginning, isn't it? One of those days, as he was teaching, that is Jesus, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And with the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up from, from before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things. This story presents to us our need for Jesus' forgiveness. You see, if we're good, if we're morally upright, we don't need forgiveness of sins. Here, the story begins with these religious leaders, Pharisees and teachers, we are told, of the law. Now, Pharisees were the first fundamentalists. They were rule keepers. They created laws in order to protect laws. They wanted to ensure that laws were never broken. Uh, you might say, well, where do we see this in society? Well, uh, years ago, and, and still somewhat today, automobile manufacturers put governors on, particularly on motors, in order to prevent them from going as fast as they could. You see, it was kind of a, a prevention from speeding. If you limit the car so it can't speed, then the law is never broken, is it? It was laws upon laws. And these religious leaders were accompanied, we are told, by teachers of the law. They were lawyers. They were experts on the law. And notice here that Luke tells us that it wasn't just a handful of Pharisees and scribes and teachers that, that gathered that day, but that throughout Jerusalem, throughout Judea, throughout Galilee, it was as if it was a whole coalition of religious leaders sought there to see what's up with Jesus. And this, no doubt, may be a familiar story to you about these four men who carry their, their lame friend, their paralyzed friend in, and, and they, they climb up on the roof and they let him down. No, no doubt Jesus perhaps was annoyed by this behavior, uh, pieces of tile falling on him as he preached and, and taught. And Jesus calls out the man and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, naturally, 
as, as Luke includes, the Pharisees are incensed by this. They're frustrated by it. And rightly so. In other words, they, they rightly understand that only God can forgive sin. You see, they had good theology. Only God can forgive sin. Psalm 103 tells us, you only forgive our iniquities. Only God can forgive sin and heal. And so the religious leaders are seeking to question, who is this person who heals? And the the real main idea here comes in verse 24. Look there at verse 24 with me. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, this whole episode and confrontation with the religious leaders it was a means to reveal Jesus' identity as the Son of Man who has authority. And you heard me read earlier from Daniel chapter 7. And Jesus here is, is taking that title and saying, that's me. I'm the one who rules and reigns as God's sovereign king. And I have authority. I have authority. Well, it's one thing to claim authority, isn't it? To say, that's mine. That I live in that house. Or, that's my car. You have to have the key to start it. Or the key to get in. And the key that reveals that Jesus has authority is here in this scene, His authority over this man's body. That he could say to this paralyzed man, get up and walk. Now again, I pointed out last week, but again, look at verse 25. Notice the the language Luke uses. Immediately, he rose up before them. Immediately. And perhaps you've sat in a hospital bed before. What happens? Your limbs begin to get weak. If you haven't walked in a long time, it's very difficult to walk. Some of us, we you know, can't make it through the night, and we get up in the morning, we can't barely walk around because we've been laying for eight hours. This man's laid his entire life. He's never walked. He, he doesn't have the bone structure, the, the muscle structure. You see, when Jesus heals, he heals holistically. This man is completely healed, such that he's able to immediately stand up and begin to walk. It demonstrates the power that Jesus had. But the point isn't the healing. The point is is what the healing reveals about Jesus, that he has authority to forgive sins. Which is what we saw earlier in verse 20. He told the man, because of his faith, and particularly the faith of his friends, your sins are forgiven. As a natural result, worship ensues. But Luke includes this story for us and for Theophilus that we might also come to know and understand that we need Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. But more than that, that Jesus is able to forgive our sins. You see, it would be wrong for us to focus on the faith of the four men, and no doubt you've heard a wonderful sermon on that in your your past, The story is not about the faith of these four fellows who rip up this roof and drop the guy on Jesus' lap. But it's about the fact that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. It was more about not their faith, but rather the one in whom their faith was placed. 
They were trusting that Jesus was who he said he was. And their faith was demonstrated by their actions. Friend, we ought to consider the radical nature of what Jesus does in this passage. Who can forgive sin but God alone is a good question. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that some tragedy strikes you. Somebody, you know, hits you with an automobile. Some tragedy happens to you. And I go up to that individual who hurt you, and I say to them, you're forgiven. You'd say to me, you have no right to forgive that person. I alone have that right. I was the one offended. I was the one hurt. You see, it proves Jesus' authority. He alone, only God can forgive sin. Because God is the one who's offended. In whom the offense occurred. Brothers and sisters, we ought to find in Christ a willing God who forgives. You can only find forgiveness by faith in Jesus. This is a wonderful truth this morning. Friend, you can be forgiven. Popular psychology teaches you to forgive yourself. No, friend, you, that doesn't work. You've offended God. You've rebelled against God. You need His forgiveness. And it is found freely flowing from Jesus. He knows our sorrows. He knows our burdens. Believe upon Him, and you can experience forgiveness. We see secondly here that you don't need Jesus if you've got the right friends. I remember years ago as a youth pastor, one of the things that was often perpetuated in youth ministry was don't hang out with bad people. Hang out with the right crowd and you'll stay out of trouble. And there, of course, is some truth in that. You hang around with the wrong crowd enough, then what will happen is you'll begin to be like them. Here's the problem with that as a Christian. Um, If you hang around Christians, your evangelism really seriously diminishes. Think about that. If your only friends are Christians, who are you evangelizing? Well, anyways, we see here as the story unfolds that Jesus calls yet another disciple. Look with me there, verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And as he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who have no need of a physician, or excuse me, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus calls a notorious tax collector. Now, for you and I, we think, well, what's the big deal? Well, tax collectors were traitors. That's really the short of it. Uh, They were extortioners. They worked for the occupying government. They were Jews who were seen as traitors because they worked for the Roman government. And their task was to collect taxes. 
But on top of that, they would take a cut for themselves. And so they would add to whatever the Roman tax was in order for they to pad their pockets. Now, you and I might say, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, how many of you have friends that work for the IRS? Thank you. Proves my point. None of you. Not one. None of you want to be tax collectors. Nobody, nobody likes, get, you know, have a big smile on their face. Yay, I get to pay taxes today. And so we see the bit of a scandal here, don't we? Jesus here kind of hanging around the, the notorious traitors of town. More than that, as he calls Levi, who is Matthew, uh, the, the gospel writer Matthew, uh, as he calls Levi into his service, and we see again a, a picture of what we saw last week, this sort of immediately following after Jesus. It's really not the main idea, but it is there. We see Levi throw Jesus a big party, don't we? Jesus has such an effect in Levi's life, he wants his friends to, to, to meet this one who has called him into his service. There's so much of the story that we don't know what Jesus has shared with Levi, what he's promised him, no doubt has preached to him the good news of the kingdom and we're told that this large company of the worst of society are gathered there at Levi's house, and the Pharisees are incensed. Why do you hang out with tax collectors and sinners? Why is it that you find yourself Jesus? You're supposed to be morally upright, pure and holy. You're supposed to be setting a good example to your disciples, and here you are frequently hanging around people who are wicked. Have you ever experienced that? You ever had friends tell you, well, why are you hanging around so-and-so? Don't you know what they do? Don't, don't you know what kind of life they live? Don't you know what they're involved with? Don't you know they're a sinner? And your response is, well, of course, friend, that, that's why I'm here. And this was Jesus' response. Jesus' response was an indictment on them, wasn't it? Look there at verse 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Everybody's like, this is obvious. I don't go to the doctor because I'm well. I go to the doctor because I'm sick. And Jesus here says that he is the physician and they are his patients. Jesus was not there to be influenced by the world, but he was in the world. He wasn't of the world. He didn't participate in their sin and extortion. But rather, he saw them as, as sin-sick sinners. He saw them as you and I see ourselves. Sinners in need of a Savior. You see, for these religious leaders, all they had to offer Jesus was, you need to get the right friends. If you would just hang around the right people, Jesus, then God would accept you and everything would be okay. And you and I, that's the attitude that often we approach life with. We, we think, oh my goodness, we, we just have to hang around holy people and then we'll somehow become more holy. And in doing so, we neglect the ministry in which Jesus has given us to be in the world. Not to be a part of some holy huddle that just sort of gathers together and, and isolates ourselves from the lost people around us. Now, Jesus went to these homes. He ate with sinners and tax collectors in order to 
evangelize them, to share the gospel with them. And in doing so, undermining this belief that all we had to do is have the right people in our lives and everything would work out. And this is the temptation for us. It is so similar. You see, they thought they could keep themselves pure by isolating themselves from those who are impure. I used to laugh as a young Christian in Southern Baptist churches. Yes, I've only been a Southern Baptist my entire life since I was an infant. I have grown up in Southern Baptist churches. And, and I used to laugh uh, during the uh, sort of worship wars and particular wars on cultural music like rock and roll, hearing sermons about how rock and roll was going to corrupt us. And then, after hearing these lectures and sermons on how deplorable rock and roll was, we would all get in the car and mom and dad would turn on country music. As if country music is such a holy... (laughs) You ever listened to these songs before? I mean, can they stay married long? What's the deal? Why do they need to drink so much? You see, it was the, the mindset that if we, if we just isolate ourselves, we'll be okay. Friend, that doesn't work. You can isolate yourself from this world. The problem is you. Remember, Jesus taught his disciples this. Out of the heart of man comes these things. You can't go anywhere. You can go to a desert island. The problem is going to follow you there, and it's your heart. See, it's not your friends that are corrupting you. It's your own wicked heart that's corrupting you. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that God has placed us in the particular places He has that we might evangelize those who need the gospel. Do you understand that you live in the particular street you live on in order to effect change? You know, so often, and particularly given this week, and this is going to be on your mind, I hope this is instructive to you. The way to change the world isn't through elections. You know, you and I have the power to change the world, to change this community. And it's through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how change happens. Not through policy and but through changed hearts and changed lives. You can make as many laws as you want, but the problem is we're still sinners. When you realize that there are faithful preaching churches, for example, in Washington, D.C., that affect more influence on policy than politicians because they are faithful staffers, they are, they are faithful policy writers, they, 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 are, they, they agree with you theologically and influence. Friend, it's not through extortion, but through evangelism that we affect change in our community. If you want to see a change, it begins by you opening your mouth and calling sinners to repentance. And understanding that Jesus didn't hang around the rich and powerful, but the weak and needy, the isolated, the, the outcast. 
When we understand that the gospel is for the least of these, then we'll see true revival and true transformation. But until then, if we keep just preaching to those that that seemingly have it all together, we will miss the work that Christ has called us to. Our passage reveals that, that we are sinners, that we deserve God's judgment, and that we receive forgiveness. Friend, just one passing word before we get on to the next point. Take comfort in knowing that Jesus saves the worst, not the best. And he can save you too. Well, thirdly, you don't need Jesus if you're religious. Jesus goes on, as you'll see in this next scene, as he's confronted by the religious leaders concerning fasting. Look with me at verse 33. And they said to him, that is the Pharisees and scribes, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new for he says, the old is good. The religious leaders question Jesus' disciples, and they say, hey, here's the deal. We're very religious. We do very religious things, like fasting. We fast regularly, twice a, twice a day or twice a week. We're, we're often fasting. We are very religious. And, and, you know, by the way, although we don't like John the Baptist, uh, his disciples also fast uh, quite frequently. They're very religious people. Uh, Jesus, what is wrong with you? Why have you not rightly taught your disciples to fast? Now, Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. He doesn't get into the discussion about whether or not fasting is right or how frequent they should fast, but rather reveals the truth about himself. He says, wait a minute here. If you go to a wedding, nobody fasts at a wedding. You'd look like a fool. You don't fast. Weddings are meant for celebration. And and in this story, in this illustration, Jesus says, I am the bridegroom. They are celebrating because the Messiah has come. It is a season of rejoicing, not a season of fasting. And so Jesus uses this as an occasion to reveal his identity through these illustrations. He gives three illustrations in this section to demonstrate that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Excuse me. Look with me there at verse 36. He uses the illustration of new clothes repaired with old clothes. No one takes an old patch, he says, and puts it on something new, or rather uh, the other way around, takes something new. You don't go out to the store and buy a new shirt in order to cut a hole in it to put it on something old. That doesn't make much sense. Nor would you take an old wineskin that's dried and and worn out and put new wine in there that's going to expand under fermentation and burst the wine. And then lastly, he sort of reverses it, and he says, no one wants new wine when they could have old. In other words, he is the new wine, and the Pharisees are the old 
And so he's revealing that something new is here. Something greater is here than that of the Old Testament law. And he's confronting us, isn't he? He's confronting us in our religious practices. Sometimes what happens is we find more joy in doing religious activities rather than who those religious activities point to. In other words, we find more joy or happiness or we trust more in, for example, our attendance or our Bible reading or our prayer or our regular giving than the one whom they point toward. You see, we we find comfort in knowing that, hey, I gave money today. God must accept me. He must really be impressed by me. He must really be happy with me because I did these things. You see, Christianity is not a religion of doing, but of trusting. It is not a religion of do these things and God will accept you, but rather trust that Jesus has done these things and we're accepted because of Him. You know, so often as Christians, when we evangelize, share the gospel, we put this particular emphasis on the death and resurrection of Christ. Rightly so. But we often forget that Jesus is Jesus rather lived the life we should have. That all of the, that this life that he lived was for us. His righteousness for ours. All of those things are good things that we do, but only Jesus can save. We must forsake the old ways of, of seeking to be accepted by God through mere religious duties. Well, finally here, I want to look at this last point, which is you don't need Jesus if you follow the rules. Jesus is confronted here in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 6, both of which on the Sabbath. The first of which he's confronted because Jesus' disciples are harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Now again, there's no Old Testament law that forbade this. Uh, This was a man-made law, a law on top of a law, in order to protect breaking the actual Sabbath. And Jesus' disciples are found to have broken the Pharisees' laws. And so look with me at verse 2. He says, But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And so he offers here an illustration from the Old Testament to say, Hey, when David was on the run from the wicked king, he also went and ate what was unlawful. In other words, the law was suspended in order to meet need. Jesus here is revealing that they were missing the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not meant merely to rest, but rather to find their rest in God. That they were to find it as as an opportunity to worship God, to be like Him, because He rested during His labors, and trust that He alone could satisfy Well, then also then in verses 6 through 11, Jesus again is confronted by the Pharisees on a Sabbath day. In this particular day, they sort of are sitting and waiting and watching Jesus 
to see if he will heal on the Sabbath. Now again, there's no Old Testament law that particularly is being broken here, but rather their own interpretation of the law. And Jesus here heals this man on the Sabbath day, and the Pharisees are incensed by it. In fact, Luke ends there in verse 11, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Jesus is confronting them here in their rules, their rules, their list. And the danger of religious lists, that is of do's and don'ts, is that they actually call the individual to serve the creator of the list. You see, if I give you a list of do's and don'ts, then you rely on me to help you understand how to do and how to not do. And that's what these religious leaders had done. They had created lists so that the people were dependent on them and not God. While the intent might be more of a religious life, in other words, don't do something or do something in order to be more religious, it actually turns us into slaves, taskmasters. It turns us into slaves rather than saints. Of course, we spent this summer considering the book of Colossians where the Apostle Paul deals with this particular subject. We need to understand, friend, that we ought never to be impressed with our own obedience. We ought never to consider ourselves more holy because we we compare ourselves to others. This is what these religious leaders were doing. No, we keep the Sabbath, you break it, we must be more holy. Or, we can compare ourselves to lost. Well, at least I'm not that guy. At least I'm not as bad as them. It is true, perhaps you're not. But Jesus here is confronting these religious leaders who are impressed with themselves, with their own obedience rather than God. And Jesus doesn't call us to mere obedience. He doesn't call us to, to, to be meticulous in our obedience. To be impressed in how we obey God. Yes, we should obey God. Yes, we should follow God's will. All of those things are true. But those things come after salvation. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, good works, obedience, flows out of a transformed life. It does not draw us closer to Him. And so you and I must fight the temptation To obey out of mere drudgery rather than delight. We ought to see that our obedience is to lead to delight. And that Jesus does not come to save us that we merely follow rules. These mere rule followers would not save themselves. Well, I want to conclude with this. Tim Keller in his book, The King's Cross, records a set of words from Dick Lucas. He was a pastor in England, a well-known preacher in the early part of the 20th century. He records this imaginary conversation between an early Christian and a neighbor in Rome. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you are religious. Great. Religion is a good thing. Where is your temple or your holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. We you don't have a temple, But where do your priests work and do their rituals? 
We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our prophet, or excuse me, our priest. No priest, but where do you offer sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. But what kind of religion is this then, utters the pagan neighbor. And the answer is, it is no religion at all. You see, Christianity isn't a religion. Not in the classic sense that some have come to define it. It is not a trusting in what we do, but in what Christ has done. It's a trusting in who He is and what He's accomplished on our behalf for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would come to know this one who has come, who has authority to forgive sins, not because we have merited your forgiveness, not because somehow we have earned it, but solely based on the finished work of Christ, his life for our life, his death for our death, that we might live forevermore in him. As we approach the table, may we do so with such fear and trepidation, knowing that Christ's body and blood was broken and shed because of our sin and our iniquity, not because of anything done wrong in Him. He was holy and perfect. And may we find our perfection through the imputed righteousness of Christ and not through our own obedience. Help us, we pray, for Your glory in Christ's name. Amen.